0: Hi everyone. I'm Darren Nair, the creator and host of Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We're currently taking an extended break right now because I'm dealing with health issues. We will be back once I have fully recovered. Thank you so much for listening to Pod Hostage Diplomacy and take care. Welcome to Pod Hostage Diplomacy. We worked free hostages and the unjustly detained around the world. Together with their families, we share their stories every week and let you know how you can help bring them home. I'm Darren Nair, and I've had the honour of campaigning with many of these families for years. These are some of the most courageous and resilient people among us, people who have never given up hope, people who will never stop working to reunite their families. And we will be right there by their side, until their loved ones are back home. Thank you for joining us. And now let's meet this week's guest. Welcome to Port Hostage Diplomacy. I'm Darren Nair. This past November marked four years since brothers Jose Luis Zambrano and Alirio Jose Zambrano, both from Texas, both American citizens, both fathers and grandfathers have been wrongfully imprisoned in Venezuela. They both worked for U.S. oil company Citgo and were arrested in Caracas in November, 2017, together with four of their colleagues. Collectively, they're known as the Citgo Six. The U.S. government has stated that they are unlawfully detained. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has called on the Venezuelan authorities to release the Citgo Six unconditionally and return them to the United States. U.S. State Department released a statement on 21st November, 2021, stating the following, today marks four years since U.S. Nationals, Jorge Toledo, Gustavo Cardenas, Jose Pereira, Tomeo Vidal, Jose Luis Zambrano, and Alirio Jose Zambrano traveled to Venezuela for a Citgo Petroleum business meeting and were not allowed to come home. After being invited to Venezuela, mass security agents detained all six men and imprisoned them on specious charges without due process or access to a fair trial. As the fifth Thanksgiving holiday approaches, we continue to seek the unconditional return and the release of all US nationals wrongfully detained overseas. Secretary Blinken will continue to relentlessly pursue the release of these individuals. To the Venezuelan authorities who have imprisoned them, we ask that they be allowed to return to the United States to reunite with their families. That was a statement from Ned Price, spokesperson for the US State Department. These six innocent Americans are being held by the Venezuelan authorities to extract concessions from the United States government. This is state-sponsored hostage-taking, also known as hostage diplomacy. This was made clear when the Citgo 6 who were released on house arrest earlier in 2021, were all taken back to prison in October by Venezuelan authorities in what is believed to be retaliation for the extradition of Colombian businessman, Venezuelan envoy, and close confidant of Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, Alex Saab. Alex Saab was extradited to the United States. He faces charges of money laundering in Florida related to his activity as a government contractor in Venezuela, as well as money laundering and fraud charges in his native Colombia. Now, if you've listened to this podcast before, you'd be familiar with the Sitgo Six. In September, we interviewed Veronica Vidal Wegerman, daughter of Tomeo Vidal, who is a colleague of Jose Luis Zambrano and Alirio Jose Zambrano. We interviewed Veronica again in October on a breaking news newsport episode the day after her father and the rest of the Sitgo Six were taken back to prison from house arrest. Please do listen to those episodes if you can. Since the Sigil six were taken to prison in October, there have been a number of significant updates, which we'll cover in this episode. Today I'm joined by Alirio Jose Zambrano's eldest daughter, Alexandra Zambrano-Forseth. Alexandra, I'm sorry for what you, your father, your uncle, and your family are going through. We'll do everything we can to help. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. For our listeners who aren't aware. Can you please walk us through what happened to your father and uncle?
1: Right. So this was the weekend before the Thanksgiving break in 2017. And I remember it was a Saturday evening and my dad got a call to go on a trip, a business trip, um, to Caracas for an urgent meeting. And there weren't a lot of details given. But, um, obviously my whole family's like texting on WhatsApp and just kind of, my mom's like, I don't know why he's being asked to do this. And he doesn't know either. And, um, they actually got in an argument, um, before he left because mom really didn't want him to go, but he didn't think he could say no. So Sunday morning, um, he was picked up by a Citgo jet in Corpus Christi. He was the refinery manager of the plant in Corpus Christi and then taken to Sugarland, Texas, where the other executives, um, were in near Houston. And then they flew to Caracas. Um, when he got there, um, the last picture I have of him is like a selfie at a hotel. Um, and we were all, you know, kind of upset that he was there, but, you know, trying to wish him luck. Um, and then Tuesday morning I was at work. This was the 21st of November. And I was actually about to give a really big presentation and I I was getting all the like, you know, PowerPoint up and everything. And I get, you know, several calls in a row from my family. And so I stepped out of the room and take a call from my sister. And she was like, Alexandra, dad's been put in jail. And I was like, everything just stopped around me. And I just remember being in this very glossy, you know, exact, you know, know, uh, corporate building. And I'm just sitting here like in shock. And I said, okay, like, do you know anything else? And she was like, no, we're trying to find everything out that we can. And All I can say is I think I just went into absolute shock somehow like delivered this presentation. I have no idea what happened. It was like a blur. And then I like immediately went to my boss's office right after he saw me give this presentation. I'm like, my dad's being held hostage or I immediately thought something was wrong. Cause obviously there's no reason my dad should be put in jail and we knew he was in Venezuela and my boss just looked at me as many have across the past, you know, four years, not really in disbelief. And he was like, yeah, go home, do what you need to do. And, um, you know, I started getting on the phone, calling my family, trying to figure out what was wrong. And, um, one of the first calls I made was actually to a, um, lawyer in Houston called Sofia Drogue, who had been a very big influence in the Hispanic Student Association that I was in. She's a Rice alumni and had a lot of connection in the community. And I was like, okay, if somebody knows how to get things done with the state department, with the government in Houston, it's going to be Sophia. So I immediately reached out to her and she actually, you know, called me back that night. And I feel like she was the one that really helped us get going that first night but it was an absolute nightmare and an adrenaline um you know roller coaster so that night um i actually drove to Katy Texas where you know some of the other families are from but a lot of my dad and my uncle and my Venezuelan side of my family live there so we all kind of drove in from everywhere um one of my aunts actually flew in from England um you know to just like kind of have this gathering of, of the minds. And, um, that was where we started being able to piece together what was going on. Um, we had only found all of this out from the news and from family members and friends in Venezuela, kind of letting us know through WhatsApp, Hey, I think they're here. We actually had like a, a very close acquaintance, um, be able to kind of figure out where they are and follow them to the courthouse, kind of follow where they were. It was a miracle that they were able to do that, but that was the only way we had any idea where they were. So it wasn't until, you know, much later, we're talking about 12 plus hours later that we even really knew that they had gone into their last meeting. You know, they had their suitcases packed in um, a company vehicle and They'd gone in planning to leave right after that to head back to the States for Thanksgiving. And in the middle of this meeting, these guards come in from the D which Veronica Vidal has kind of gone through this part and explained a little bit about what all those letters mean and all of that. But essentially you had armed guards come in, put them under arrest, take all of their belongings away and send them into <laughs> essentially a basement hole. Um, Into essentially a place where they keep political prisoners and folks that they need to extract information from. So probably one of the worst locations you could be at um, as far as Venezuelan prisons go. Um those first 24 to 48 hours were an absolute nightmare. I mean, the whole thing was a nightmare and is still a nightmare, but feeling completely adrift didn't hear from sitgo until literally the next night so imagine your dad's on this business trip he's been a loyal company employee for almost 30 years and you're sitting there like what is sitgo doing like whose responsibility is it to get my dad out of this situation and i think that's one of the biggest things at this point that I'm 100% clear about, but other hostage families should be, is that at this point in how the United States handles hostages, the family has to own and drive and understand everything. You have full ownership over getting this person out. But at that point in the game, we didn't know. So we're looking to the State Department. We're looking to the senators. We're looking to, you know, sit, go. We're thinking someone's going to unlock this SWAT team to get them out of there. And of course you know, four years later, that didn't happen. So over the past couple of years, they spent like the first two to three years in the DHSCM, which was that essentially torture prison, um, where it's been well documented that folks have died um, because they were tortured. When they were put back in jail recently in October, um, that was not the first time that The Venezuelan government has shown that they are human pawns. The first time was in February of 2020, when former President Trump hosted Juan Guaido. The Venezuelan government retaliated by putting the men back in jail from house arrest. That had been the first time they were on house arrest. And it was, even though it was only like two to three months, it was a huge, huge thing for our family to be able to see these guys. When they were in the Dehesa, it was almost impossible to to talk or anything. So um, that was a roller coaster, and then it happening again here in 2020. You know, I think Veronica said it well in your breaking news episode. It, it's just enough is enough, and our families are, are not really interested in house arrest again. We don't. We just want them to come home, and, and we're not really interested in compromises anymore. Um, and so ever since being back in the Helicoide, which is a, a different prison, obviously, than the Dijesim, um very recently here in November, um, Ambassador Carsons was able to make a visit uh, to Venezuela to meet with officials there as well as meet with the men. So for all intents and purposes, this is their first consular visit um, in the four years that they've been detained, wrongfully detained. Um, as far as we know uh, from details that he shared and some details that our families um, have shared, they were able to have a private meeting in the in the prison. They were able to, you know, shake hands, even hug. Um, you know, the Vidal family shared that uh, there was a you know, their dad felt like this huge burst of hope. I think he spoke for all of the men. Um, and he, w- he was even able to get like handwritten letters from our family members um, to us and to the U.S. government, you know, so the kind of proof that yes, all of this did happen. Um, but I, you know, I, at the time I was happy, but I was also feeling devastated for my dad and for my uncle because I can only imagine after, you know, I'm sure they've been dreaming of this magical moment where the US government swoops in and gets them out of there. And can you imagine like you actually see that happen? And then they're like, Oh, yeah, we're not here to take you home. We're, we're just here to, you know, check on you. I just can't imagine. I know how I felt. Um, I think they were they have a lot of grace. And I think they were happy anyway. But I can only imagine deep down they were like, you know, how much longer how many more times does this carrot have to be dangled in front of my face? Um, And so it it was positive news because it sounds like, you know, um, Ambassador Carson's is being able to get the leverage from the U.S. that he needs to even go down there and engage directly versus going through um, interlocutors like the Richardson Center, et cetera. Um, At the same time, it's like, you know, how long is this essentially a dance going to go on before you know these guys are on a plane back to the United States.
0: Can you talk to us about your father and uncle's background? So I know they're from Texas. I know that your dad has worked for Sitgo for almost thirty years. Can you just give us an idea of their background and perhaps maybe why these six men were targeted?
1: Right. So my dad is the oldest of six children, um, and really like most Venezuelan families, uh, the oil industry is kind of where, where there's most, a lot of careers and a lot of opportunity. So my dad, um, was the first one of his family to come to the United States to get his college education. So he actually went to LSU go Tigers. Um, (laughs) uh, he went to LSU when he was like 17 and he met my mom who's from Mississippi in college. And, um, you know, they got married and actually went back to Venezuela where he went to work for Petavessa uh, for a while. My uncle, my Tioza Luis is a couple years younger than my dad, but my dad kind of forged this path for his brothers and sisters to also get their education in the United States. So my Tioza Luis actually did essentially, um, he actually finished high school, um, in Gonzalez, Louisiana, which is just a little bit outside of Baton Rouge. And then he also went to LSU. Um, they both got engineering degrees. Dad got a mechanical engineering degree. My uncle is an industrial engineer. Um, and then they both returned to Venezuela to begin their careers in the, in the oil and gas industry. Um, my mom and dad had me and my sister while they were in Venezuela. And when I was about seven, um, they, my dad was selected with actually um, the group that included Mr. Vidal and a few others um, to go ahead and get transferred to Citgo in the United States. I think it was a means, really, of of being able to integrate, uh, you know, Venezuelan uh, folks into the culture at Citgo, since it is a Venezuelan owned American company, which is a very confusing relationship, but. Um, that, that was part of the reason and, and, uh, to essentially groom and train potential future managers, um, at that company. So it was pretty much top performers that were asked to go. Um, that was about 1999. My dad and mom moved to Lake Charles, Louisiana, um, where one of Sitgo's largest refineries are. And he kind of started just like everybody else does at kind of the bottom of the totem pole. Um, he was a project manager and then he slowly started working his way up. My dad's actually, uh, <laughs> my dad's like always been this overachiever, very hard worker. Um, it wasn't enough just to be a mechanical engineer. He decided that he was going to go back to school and become a chemical engineer because he thought he would have more opportunities. Like you tell me who does that. I wouldn't, I'm a chemical engineer. I don't know if I could go back and get another engineering degree. So he, um, with three kids at this point, my, my baby sister had been born, um, in 2000. Um, he goes back to school while working, um, gets his chemical engineering degree. And then that's really when his career took off. Um, he started having more supervisory roles. And, um, when I was in high school about like 2010, um, you know, that that's whenever he really was able to do more, um, several supervisory roles and was getting positioned to be one of the top managers in the refinery. Um, Mr. Vidal, for example, actually worked at the same refinery that my dad did and and was actually his supervisor um, for a really long time. So um, we, the Vidal family is probably one of the only families um, that we actually knew before this whole thing happened. Um, And it was really devastating for us to feel like, you know, knowing each other for so long and knowing how much integrity our parents have and like how much they've tried to be part of the community, local community, you know, how proud they were when they were natural, became naturalized citizens. Um, and just, you know, in disbelief that, that something like this could happen to these men that are so well-known in the community. So then when I graduated from college in about 2014, my dad was offered, um, Essentially, a top three executive-ish role at the Corpus Christi refinery, and kind of from then, um, eventually landed in the highest position, which is the vice president of the refinery. And that was the position he was in when he went. At, he was asked to go on this trip. My uncle, on the other hand, uh, kind of the shorter version is he eventually came over to the U.S. through Sitgo Asphalt, which is a different um, part of the company that no longer um, exists. But he came up through the procurement chain. And, um, that was kind of the highest position he was in was the, um, essentially VP of procurement, um, and human resources as far as, you know, what does this all have to do with why they were down there? Um, so eight people actually got called down. And as you can see, only six, the six six, have been in jail. One of them sort of got tipped off the other one, We have no idea, kind of ran off into the ether. But um, the only thing that these people have in common is that they worked for Citgo and that they were Venezuelan and that they had VP in their title. And I think Veronica Vidal Wegeman also mentioned this, but many of them had only been put in their VP, quote unquote, executive position within two months of being taken. Um, What was... Also very strange is that they were, you know, asked on this trip out of nowhere. This combination of people would usually not have gone really anywhere together as far as traveling goes. So it was a very strange, uh, very strange that dad, for example, they have two other refineries. They have one in Chicago area and then another one like Charles. Dad was the only refinery manager that was asked to go um, on this trip. So it begs the question, where were all the other American VPs? There's more VPs than just the ones that went on this trip, right? So it was obviously targeted to Venezuelan executives at Citgo. And um, the claim-
0: Sorry to interrupt, but but when you say uh, it was targeted at Venezuelan executives, we're talking about the executives that have both American and Venezuelan citizenship, because the reason why your father, uncle, and the rest of the Citgo are being used as pawns is because they are Americans as well. If they were just Venezuelans, they're less likely to be used as pawns. They're being used to extract concessions from the United States because they have American citizenship as well, right?
1: So. That is what one would think looking backwards is that, okay, the Venezuelan government knew that many of these men have dual citizenship and they were going to get all of these, you know, benefits from taking them hostage. Um, What my family believes at least is that they may have not known that some of these men were naturalized citizens. And at the time, you know, politically in Venezuela, what we can't leave out, which is so important is that this didn't happen in a vacuum. Maduro, and his team were trying to progress a, quote, unquote, anti-corruption movement ahead of elections coming up in 2018. And so they specifically, you know, got in- imprisoned tons of folks in Petavesa and then wanted to almost make a show of, look, we also, quote, unquote, are getting corruption out of Sitgo, which we own. So for us, that we think that it was more of a short-term grab, um, a consolidation of power, um, that then once they realized that some of these men were naturalized citizens, they saw the opportunity to capitalize on that and really drive home using them as, as pawns. Um, the allegation is that these men were part of trying to refinance Sitgo's debt without the authority of the board and trying to uh, potentially embezzle money and a spy for the United States and all kinds of crazy allegations. Um, and, and I mean it's the allegations are really baseless. Um, and in addition, there's been many reports published that show that yes, you know the CEO was investigating refinancing Citgo's debt, but that was at the request of the Pdavesa board and there's been many, many, Documents of meeting minutes with signatures from the PDVSA board requesting, um, you know, these activities. And frankly, most of the other men that were uh, imprisoned here, the Sitgo 6, had nothing to do, had no knowledge of this potential refinancing. So it's really when you get into the details of the allegation, it's like any other um, hostage diplomacy situation where, you know, You find this little crumb of something that you could misconstrue into a crime, and then you blame people for it. And you really don't ever have to prove it or, you know, even deal with the fact that you made it up or that it was wrong. So the allegations aren't really where we've focused. Um, We have thankfully been able to give all and any information that we have to the U S government and to the NGOs to convince them of these men's innocence. And, um, that took a little while, you know, when, when you're a hostage, you have to really sit there and prove, Hey, my dad's innocent. I literally sent packets to the CIA, the NSA, the FBI. I mean, you name it. I sent whole packages with like all my dad's personal information as if they didn't already have it, but you know, Asking them, like, please, please look into this. My dad did nothing wrong. I mean, that is how you know, convinced we are that this is a sham. Um, and and it got to the point where we were like, if he did do something wrong, please tell us so that we could actually, you know, do something about it. And frankly, maybe that's a way to extradite him back to the United States if he did anything wrong in the United States, which he did it, you know, so thankfully, you know, we were able to get that cleared out of the way pretty quickly, um, you know, within six months of them getting taken. But, you know, this whole time, um, we have had to deal with the... Um, the typical patterns of a developing country's court system, which is that there is little to no due process and the machinations of due process are 100% levers for the government to send messages. So for example, you know, from 2017 to 2019, their preliminary audience where they could even set a trial date for example was delayed over 15 times so so these men would get taken to court they'd sit there all day we're th- every single time they go to court we have no idea what's going to happen so huge emotional roller coaster no media is allowed in you know is a disaster and um, and you know then they'd just send them back to to the prison oh it, it's delayed to this next date delayed to this next date um, every single time this is happening in addition you know, we're having to figure out how to pay legal fees. Um, it, it, you know, we don't know where the case is going to go. It's a disaster. And it wasn't actually until like mid-2019 that they even had a trial date set. Then after that trial date was set, in the Venezuelan legal system, they don't actually have to put a date ever. They don't actually have to honor it. So they just said, yes, you're going to go to trial. Um, it wasn't until November of 2020 Over a year later, that they were actually, quote unquote, sentenced um, and, quote unquote, found guilty, which I don't know if I believe that the Venezuelan government's coordinated enough for this to be true, but we got that sentencing over the Thanksgiving break. So every Thanksgiving for us is kind of a nightmare. Um, But especially in 2020, it was like, okay, really? Like after delaying and not setting a date, you randomly decide my dad's guilty, you know? Uh, you know, three years after after he was taken hostage away from me, so that was kind of kind of brutal. Um, yeah. Um, so even even in you know twenty twenty, we we kept fighting, and then you know in April, out of nowhere, um, the men were were put back on house arrest. And we can only imagine that that may have had something to do with a change in the administration um, from former President Trump to now President Biden, um, with maybe the Venezuelan government trying to send a message. Um, That was a really long period from April to October that they were on house arrest. um, And the men had completely varying experiences. You know, my dad and my uncle, um, they didn't have to have the guards in the apartment. They were able to have, um, you know, I think it was like 12-hour shifts between pictures that they, you know, were not a flight risk, et cetera. Um, Other families, they had very, very different and worse situations. Um, But it wasn't until after the men were taken back to the helicoide here in October that the, all the families um, were able to work through the Foley Foundation and write a very public letter to President Biden. Um, because really, we'd had enough. We, we told them about Saab and the potential extradition. We told them we were worried about it. We were worried about retaliation, and nothing was done, as Veronica mentioned. And I think we just had enough, and we were tired of playing nice. Um, it's always a balance with everyone you're working with in a hostage situation that you're trying to keep relationships going. You're trying to keep that trust. But at this point it wasn't getting us anywhere. And thankfully I think that letter lit a fire under the administration to enable SPIHA to do more. And that's actually, I think what got, um, Roger the, sorry, Ambassador Carson's, the available, um, opportunity to go to Venezuela at all. So yeah, eh, a lot of lessons learned. For sure.
0: So what are the conditions of the prison, your father, your uncle and the rest of the sick Six are currently being held in? Obviously when they were on house arrest, you could have a video chat with them. Um, but what is it? What are the conditions they're currently being held in and how often are you communicating with your father?
1: So right now all six men are in the same cell. Um, I don't think it's any larger than a small room. I don't have the exact dimensions. Veronica mentioned that they have to share a toilet. It's an open space. They do what they can to keep things clean. Um, Right now, we actually, my family, the Zambranos, have hired someone to deliver food every couple days. They, um, they They don't really have the ability to talk to us. They can call us maybe like a couple times a week. Um, for two to three minutes, depending on what they, they can negotiate with other prisoners or maybe the guards. Um, and sometimes we're able to get letters to them and they can have visitors too. all of this at the whim of the guards. But, uh, you know, it it's really about depending on uh, people's personalities at the time whoever the guard is and then seeing if family members can get them letters uh, so i feel like i'm living in the 1800s or something where you know my dad gets news about things like 2 to 3 weeks after it's happened and then i hear from him and we actually have a structure to our letters where it's like okay this is what's happened these are the answers to your previous questions here's what's next you know uh, it's uh, it was a big shift back after we've been in more easy communication while he was on house arrest. He had Wi-Fi. We were able to celebrate our first father's day with him and our first birthday with him, um, that we had since he was taken. And it was so emotional. I mean, he was able to have a real birthday party with friends at the apartment from Venezuela. He actually ran a virtual 5k with me, Uh, While he was on house arrest. So he could run like in the parking lot in front of his apartment, the guards would let him do that. And so he ran a 5k. And it was so cool, you know, to be able to do that at the same time with him. We like timed it. And then, you know, once I got back, and I could call him on Wi Fi, I was like, Dad, like, you know, what was your time? And you know, it's embarrassing. He actually beat me he actually did better than me. So I was kind of like, that's, that's not okay. Uh, you know, the old man still got it, but, um, yeah, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to say is when he was on house arrest and my uncle too, it wasn't perfect, but you know, we could begin to heal. We could, um, we could really chat and, and work through things that needed to be worked through just emotionally, you know, like we've changed, he's changed. Um, And probably most importantly, my sister has two girls, Iris and Olivia. And he was able to really like get to know Iris, the oldest, over the phone. And she calls him Poppy. And so she would see him and go, Poppy, Poppy. And it's just like, oh, you know, you just that's the stuff that just hurts so bad is the little stuff. And so that's that's what makes it so hard that they're back in the elicoida and kept from these simple moments that make life
0: worth it. I'm, I'm generally sorry your family are going through this. And I know after after being so close to being free for that six months under house arrest, now going back to what it was like previously where you can't speak to him as often as you like, you can't see him anymore, it can be heartbreaking. So I'm, I'm truly sorry for that. Um, are, does your father or your uncle have any health issues? that require medical care and if so is this provided
1: yes um man it's just hard a little bit to talk about i mean you know my dad's just getting older like everybody does um he's always had high cholesterol high blood pressure um he wears a like a CPAP when he goes to sleep Um and he has he magically out of all the things we've been able to send over there, my mom was able to get him his CPAP and the parts. And um thankfully he was like he's been able to plug it into the wall and, and wear it. Um I think the thing that breaks my heart the most is the untreated high blood pressure um has actually led to him um losing his eyesight a lot um due to glaucoma, um, him and my uncle and Um, it's just kind of like the tip of the iceberg, um, of like what's been lost, what's been taken from him. Um, I think the biggest elephant in the room is his PTSD. I mean, he has PTSD. I don't think a lot of people talk about this, but, you know, he's written to me before about nightmares. He has nightmares. He, um you know, has, he has little like panic attacks sometimes. And I think a lot of the men do, but they don't talk about it. Um, and I mean, that's the biggest thing that I, I think he handles as best he can is that he's a prisoner and he has mental health issues on top of literal physical health issues. Um, and, you know, thankfully he's been able to stay strong, but, anybody would be going through serious, um, mental health issues. And, and, um, I just, I just pray and pray every day that he stays spiritually strong and, and that all of the men continue to stay strong. But yeah, Venezuelan government doesn't do anything to help with that. They don't, you know, the only time that you could get a medical assistance of any kind is like what happened to Mr. Pereira, where he literally almost died in that prison. um, And, you know, had had some sort of um, emergency situation. The men literally had to, like, carry him out of there, get him into an ambulance. And it was only at the hospital that he was able to somehow magically be revived. But, you know, the Pereira family went through an incredible trauma. Um, and, And then, you know, what's to boot? He gets no special treatment for that. He's back in the cell with all of them. And they all had the trauma of seeing you know, someone they've had to go through this together with first, you know, the past four years almost die right in front of their eyes. Um, so, you know, just that kind of stuff happens all the time. Um, when they were in the D they were absolutely tortured there. They were all put in a closet one time with like no clothes for hours. Um, they had to listen to people get tortured with batteries. Um, you know, they dealt with like mob, fighting situations. Um, because if you recall, you know, in 2018, 2019, a lot of big protests were happening in Venezuela. A lot of uprisings were happening and a lot of the, you know, military personnel that were allegedly part of these things were being put in the DSM. and the Venezuelan government was absolutely trying to send a message by, you know, torturing these folks. And, um, you know, uh, uh, many, many people have died in these prisons, not just due to the Um, the conditions that they're in, which are filthy, but just due to the complete lack of medical care. Um, so by the time something happens, it's an emergency and it's too late. And yeah, we worry about that all the time.
0: So for our listeners, Jose Pereira, one of the sick go six. He had a heart attack, right? That's right. You've already covered this. Um, but how have you and your family been coping these last four years? Because it's not just your father and your uncle that's been held hostage. You, your family, have basically been held hostage as well these last four years. So, how have you guys been coping?
1: Um, it has been a journey. Um, the way we have been coping is by having, by developing really clear roles and responsibilities which Elizabeth Whelan talked a little bit about in her podcast, um, another, you know, family of a hostage um, developing clear roles and responsibilities, trying to have boundaries with this horrible trauma that we're living, you know, trying to have a normal life and support each other and having a quote unquote normal life. Um, And honestly, I would say the other two big things is like going to therapy individually and as a family has really helped um because like for me personally um i've always tried to be like positive and proactive and like i've got it and i'm the oldest sibling and you know it wasn't until about a year in um that i was like gosh i'm so tired like no matter what i do and 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 you know what's happening to me and i would like get an email with like a small critique at work like Hey, could you change this slide? I think it could, you know. And I'd start crying at my desk, and you know, I talked to my husband about it. He's like, "Alexandra, maybe you should go see someone. This isn't really like you." Well, come to find out, you know, I of course had uh, situational anxiety and depression, duh, you know. But it took me really being um, emotionally just drained and torn up um, to actually get the help I needed um, and, and like get medication, and everything. And you know, thankfully. I've been able to encourage my family to do the same. Um, and that's really helped us stay resilient and be able to like have the energy to keep fighting and, um, you know, not just fall into a pit of despair. Um, and, and I think, you know, lastly, I think a lot of us have tried to to find spiritual solace in all of this. Um, whenever something like this happens, you want to be angry at the universe. Like why, why is this happening to my dad? He's innocent. Um, you know, why is the U S government not care more? Why would the regime like do this to us? Um, we're not special people. (laughs) Um, and, you know, I think you either, you can kind of pick your three ways. You can just kind of not care. You can be angry at God or whatever you call it, or you can try to see, have some faith that this is for some sort of reason. And and really try to build a spiritual relationship that makes sense for you with your higher power. And I think that's something we've all tried to do. Um, that's kind of helped us stay positive as well.
0: I think as people would say, this is not something that happened because of you. This is something that happened to you and it's not your fault and you're doing the best you can. And, uh, we'll do everything we can to help out. So stay strong and know you're not alone Thanks. in this. Um, <laughs> It's been four years now since your father and uncle have basically been held hostage by the Venezuelan authorities. Um, I know you've been campaigning publicly. So what kind of approach have you been taking to campaigning and advocacy? So when I spoke to Veronica Vidal Wegerman, Tommy Vidal's daughter, she told me that her family didn't go public straight away. They waited to see if this could be resolved quietly behind the scenes. And after not seeing any progress they then went public. I asked her if she had to do this again, would she go straight to the media on day one? And she said, yes. So your family's in the same situation. What are your thoughts?
1: Right. So I completely agree with Veronica um, that the biggest thing that I can say is get to the highest level of the government, of NGOs and of private citizens as fast as you can. And the fastest way is through the media and the best the highest like press providers. So, yes, it's good to start at the local and like talk to people in your city or state, but you want to get on the major providers. You want to get on Fox, you want to get on CNN, New York Times, etc. Um a big thing that maybe isn't clear to people from the outside is, you know, unlike other um hostage cases, we were six families like thrown on a safety boat, right, together. And It was really challenging to try and respect each other's, you know, right to do what's right for your family, but still knowing that anything you do could affect me, right, could affect my family. So a lot of that first year, you know, people had different thoughts, feelings, we should go to the media, but a lot of folks just, even if they really wanted to, felt like, what if I go to the media and their dad gets hurt? You know, that's on me. And so that was part of the fear too, Not just the fact that we were like, well, something could happen to my dad. Um, But I think, you know, in late 2018, so almost a year after they had been taken, um, you know, most of the men had lost over 50 pounds. I mean, they were literally starving. We could not take food there. They were barely able to talk to us. I mean, it was absolutely terrifying. I thought my dad was going to die of starvation. And it was like very soon after that, that there were violent, violent protests going on in the prison. And we said, we have to say something. I got a voicemail from my dad. It was definitely in February. And he was basically saying, hey, if I don't talk to you again, I want you to know I love you. I'm really scared about what's going on. And I just, I know for me personally and my family, I was like, I don't think I'll be able to live with myself if he dies because I was scared. And so I actually was able to get on Fox News, national news, um, never been on national news before and like was able to tell the country, you know, what was going on. Um, and that kind of started a cascade of events where, where we were really not scared of it anymore, but, um, yeah, absolutely. And then the second thing that I think the Videls have also done a really great job of, um, is that they, they have mastered the demanding tone. You know, it is hard to sit there and demand things from people that you need something from. Cause they, you feel like, okay, they could ignore you, you know, they don't have to listen to you. They don't have to work with you. And I definitely had the style of like tiptoeing and, you know, buttering up. And I would say that at this point in the game, being the loudest in the room is definitely the strategy. Um, even if it's not super comfortable for you. Um, and so that, that was kind of the first thing was like going to the media, writing, um, op-eds and things like that, um, keeping our Twitter account super active and building a vast network through Twitter. Um, but the one thing that I think I, I'll i say I did myself and, and kind of got people to rally around was I really wanted to have um, kind of a one-stop shop for the case. And it was fine if people wanted to have their own website for their own family member, but I wanted to have a place that if someone just Googles sigo 6 you know, what pops up isn't these random articles. I wanted there to be some sort of website where people could go to and understand what was going on because not everybody's well-versed with Venezuela and the politics. Not everybody knows um, what all has happened with this case. It's very convoluted. What can they do? And so my thought was, hey, let's have a one-stop shop and do everything from there. And we even would send out like, um, not as much right now, but we would send out like every three months an update to... The coalition, the Sitgo 6 coalition members of, hey, this is what's going on with the case, because, as you know, when there's not a lot of updates, this can get put into the back burner. We definitely wanted to keep it uh, fresh. Um, the last thing that we did before the pandemic hit was a big march in Houston. So we actually got, you know, folks to come um we had several hundred people. We all had shirts and we got the media out there. And I think that really did a lot to show, hey, there's people behind these guys. There's human faces behind these guys. And these aren't even the only people that support them. These were just the people that were able to make it to Houston. So um, really keeping that pressure on the government is is huge. Um, and then the advocacy part that I think we've also tried to, to manage is to build relationships with NGOs, right? Like the Richardson Center, Hostage U.S., um believe it or not in a lot of cases they do more than the US government does um not just for advocating for your family to the literal hostage takers but also helping you um deal with the aftermath of this person being gone like hostage us helped my sister um you know, get special financial aid packages at University of Houston. They helped my mom and my aunt figure out what to do with their mortgages because they don't have power of attorney. I mean, there's just a lot of aftermath that happens when someone is, um, ripped from the face of the planet, you know? Um, so these nonprofits are, are, um, incredibly helpful to us. And there's many more on that list.
0: So you mentioned the NGOs are doing a better job than the U S government. And I agreed many, I've spoken to many families. They have so many positive things to say about these NGOs, the Richardson Center, Hostage US, um, and the James W Foley Legacy Foundation. So you said you wanted to keep pressure on the U S government. What should the U S government be doing better?
1: As far as our case specifically goes um, we need results, right? I mean, I am a professional, I work in a corporate environment and, you know, if I just keep having meetings with my clients and I'm not actually getting things done, I'm going to get taken off that, that project. I'm going to get taken off that case. I might even get fired. So, you know, I, sometimes with the state department, I see a lot of, um, a lot of meetings, a lot of emails, a lot of updates, but not a lot of results. And I hate to sound ungrateful because their team is really gracious with us and really kind. Um, And I do think that their hearts are in the right places. But you know, I think this is a big difference between the government working for you and you know maybe a private entity or what have you, because you know they're not really beholden to actually get anything done. They're just beholden to oh well, I had a meeting with the family. Oh, I sent them an email. Oh, I updated them. You know, it's like well, when you look at measurable results. Have the conditions improved for my dad as a result of your actions? Is my dad any closer to freedom? Does my dad have any of his human rights restored? Are we able to communicate with him? What about his medical? You know, I mean, there are very tangible objectives that you could be measuring, and I don't, I don't feel like the the, like the U.S. government holds himself accountable to that. So, in short, getting results. Um, I think on a larger scale, um, I think. The executive branch and the legislative branch could do a better job of keeping hostage cases in the forefront of their statements and, and, and foreign policy, like making sure that that is a clear priority, uh, consistent between the two branches. So, like if you have a constituent and you're a senator, you know every single day you should be knowing about how's that how is that hostage doing. And making sure that you're actually following up with the executive branch on what results are we getting? What can the legislative branch be doing to support the executive branch? Whether that be passing resolutions, um, bringing it up in the foreign relations committee, what have you? Um, you know, these are taxpayers and they are citizens. So um, the two branches working together more smoothly and and really sending the message that this is a like number one priority um, could make a big difference. And I think. From a SPHOP perspective, the the hostage affairs unit in the State Department, um, I think they're developing this and they've recently gotten a lot of funding, but there absolutely needs to be like a guidebook, um, a comprehensive guidebook that's given to your family whenever this happens. Um, I feel like every single one of uh, our families have had to just like reinvent the wheel every time and educate yourself. And there's just best practices that are not difficult to write in a Word document, NGOs that with contact information, it's just like you literally have to make this up yourself. And God forbid you don't have access to the internet or you're in a low-income situation where you're working multiple jobs. I mean, if it wasn't for the privilege that my family has and the resources and just numbers that we have, I don't know that we could have gotten this far um, with the resourcing that that the U.S. government has on it right now as far as guiding a path. And lastly, I would say that I really wish that President Biden would actually make a statement about this or tweet about it. Secretary Blinken's been fantastic. I think he's been um, a big advocate for the release of our family since literally like February right after, um, you know, the election. But I haven't seen the same commitment from President Biden, and um, I really expected more. And I think that his, his um, support would grease the wheels way more to minimize interdepartmental churn for the state department, um, and really give, send a message to the Venezuelan government that this is a priority and we're not joking around. Um, and I mean, those are just the the short and sweet details, you know, could go on for a long time, but that's the short and sweet.
0: Thank you for that. They're good recommendations. Um, so you mentioned president Biden, you mentioned the executive branch. When I spoke to Veronica in September, she mentioned that President Trump and President Biden have never mentioned the Go 6. So uh, you stated he needs to make, he, he needs to say something. He needs to make a statement about them, right?
1: I mean, let me put it this way. The president has time to like pardon a turkey or like light a Christmas tree, but he doesn't have time to like mention that several of his citizens are languishing in horrible boxes called prisons that their human rights are being detained, you know, taken from them. Like, what's the point of being American? What's the point of this great country if your human rights don't actually matter? Optics are more important. And I really call on President Biden and his administration, as well as our senators to stand for more.
0: No, I, I absolutely agree with you. So speaking about the Senate, Now I've spoken to uh, the family of uh, Trevor Reed, uh, an American from Texas and former U.S. Marine held in Russia. Mm -hmm. I interviewed his parents, Joey and Paula Reed in September. So a bipartisan resolution has been passed in both the Senate and the House of Representatives calling for the release of Trevor Reed, uh, who is currently being held in Russia for over two years. Now, should Congress put forward a similar resolution for the Sitgo 6 who've been held for twice that amount of time?
1: Yeah, you know, this is embarrassing, but I didn't even know about that until you and I spoke the first time, you know, and I've been doing this for four years and I thought I knew a lot, but this is exactly what I'm talking about. The State Department's not coming to us with ideas our own senators aren't coming to us with ideas, right? It's 100% on the families to push for this kind of stuff. So after we spoke, I actually got my brother-in-law who helps with a lot of research. I said, hey, look into this, who was involved? What does it enable? What does it do that's different than what we have? So, I mean, if we look into it and see that we should push for it, we absolutely will. Um, But this is just another great example of like, you know, why do you need a bipartisan resolution for people to give a hoot about, Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's a there's actual policy goals that need to be implemented and 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 worked out by the legislative branch, but they're having to pass resolutions just to get base things done in the executive branch, my opinion. But regardless, neither here nor there, I we're looking into it and we're looking to see what we could do in that regard for the sake of six.
0: So what should journalists and the media be doing better to help? don't get me wrong. Uh, they have given you significant coverage to date and everyone's grateful for that, but is there anything else they can be doing further to help?
1: Yeah. There's some key correspondents that have been great and super professional as far as, you know, always staying up to date on the case, always tweeting and and seeing the bigger picture, um, giving fair and balanced, you know, reporting. I, I think what I would ask is that, um, is that some of the media would dig a little deeper um, to try and understand some of the questions that we have around, like why isn't the US government doing more? What what is really the labyrinth here um, for the support of wrongfully detained and um, other Americans held hostage? How are we different from other countries? Um, You know, Darren, when you and I had spoken earlier, we talked about the book by Joel Simon, I think is his name, about we should negotiate. Um, he has all kinds of data and information there about how different countries handle hostages and wrongfully detained uh, citizens and advocating for them. And I can tell you right now that the U.S. and and Britain as well are outliers on the world stage um, and that the data doesn't show that the lack of advocacy from our countries does us any good as far as, um, you know, less Americans and, and uh and British folks being taken hostage, etc. So I think that if the media could dig deeper on how we handle hostages and wrongfully detained folks, and you know, bring that awareness broader to the American people, that would help with holding the government accountable. Um, versus you know, focusing on just each of these cases seeming so strange and like such outliers. There's a lot of sensation there, but what it's what we're really missing is what are what are the gaps that the US government needs to be held accountable for? And can the media help clarify those?
0: I agree with you. That's definitely a, a great place to look into and and hostage diplomacy in general. Your father, your uncle, and the rest of the Citgo Six are basically hostages. And yep. uh, I know the Jason Rezaian and Kate Woodson from the Washington Post are working on raising more awareness of state-sponsored hostage-taking. Uh, Jason Rezaian knows this well because he was a former hostage in Iran. And it's important for people to acknowledge, uh, state sponsored hostage taking that people like your father are not wrongfully imprisoned. I mean, they are wrongfully imprisoned, but they are also hostages. On this point, I understand there is a difference in state department designation and the tools available if an American is classified as wrongfully detained or as a hostage. So if you are a hostage, for instance, like Austin Tice and Marge uh held in Syria, the hostage recovery fusion cell works on your case as well, in addition to the SPIHA office and the SPIHA stands for Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. But if you are wrongfully imprisoned, it's my understanding based on the families I've interviewed to date, only the PR office helps you. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you're actually picking up on something I missed earlier, which is, you know, what can the USA do better? Um, another one is explaining that there even is a difference between being a hostage and being wrongfully detained. Um, as just a normal citizen, like, especially someone who didn't study political science or anything like that. I mean, all of this is new. So, and then the worst part is that you don't even know what these different things enable. So you don't even know what it means. Like, what's the difference? Like, how could I convince someone that my dad is a hostage instead of wrongfully detained? I would have to go into the labyrinth of the policy and find a connection that would help explain it to me or maybe a lawyer you know, for me to even be able to have access to these resources that I should have as a taxpayer, or at least the ability to have them clarified, but the U.S. government isn't forthcoming with that information. Um, so for right now, we're wrongfully detained, whatever that means, but um, there's so much inconsistency. Um, you know, there was a long time there where the U.S. government didn't recognize um, Maduro as the president of Venezuela, right? And they were advocating for interim president, um, Juan Guaido. And at that time, we were really confused. We were like, well, if the regime isn't what you see as the government of Venezuela, then does that mean that they're hostages now because they're not being held by a government? You know, I mean, talk about the gray. So it's, it's disheartening um, because we don't really know how to push on that. In any specific way, but they are designated as wrongfully detained, whatever that means.
0: So, what can members of the public do to help?
1: Following us on Twitter, sigo Six Coalition is probably the easiest thing and the most helpful when folks retweet um, because it helps show uh, key stakeholders and and participants that people care about this. Um, the other thing is we do have links on our website to you know, be able to write to Texas senators or Louisiana senators, um, even the White House, um, believe it or not, these letters do get traction. Um, if like four or five people even write to a senator about one thing um, at the staff meeting that day, it'll come up. You know, so we, we've we had that happen multiple times um, where there'll be a surge of of, of interest and, and we will get a little more help from a legislative office, which is great. Um, you can even like, tag people in your, in your retweets and that helps as well. Um, but I think from a bigger perspective, um, folks can just realize that being an American citizen doesn't really protect you from anything when you are in a foreign country. Um, just because you, you know, go to some other country and you have that beautiful Navy passport doesn't mean that if something happens to you, the U S is going to send a CIA team down and rescue you. It is going to be a very long and drawn out process, and you may never get out. So, um, having your ducks in a row in the United States, having power of attorney, having um, you know stuff set up for your family, just as if you were like to prepare to pass away. If you're going to travel to to you know potentially a, a a dangerous place, that is a huge burden that you can take away from your family. Um, and then also just continuing to stay educated and aware of, of how is our government really treating its citizens and how much is it valuing human rights versus optics and holding um, our elected officials accountable to the most basic things that matter um, in life, uh, which is protecting your citizens. So that's how folks can help us out.
0: Can you just repeat... Your social media handles, which platforms they're on, as well as your website address?
1: Yep. We pretty much have two main uh, platforms. We have our Twitter account, which is at SitGo6Coalition. And then we have our website, sitgo6coalition.org. And on the website, you'll find bios of each of the men. Um, And we have a case 101 summary that even includes some information about Venezuela if you're, like, completely new to this whole thing. Um, And we have links for you to, you know, write to elected officials, et cetera. And um, you can also join the coalition if you want to stay up to date on this case in a longer format. Um, We send updates every once in a while on how they're doing. Um, And we're always happy to make a connection. So if you have any resources or ideas, we also have a place on the website for you to connect with us there. so, yeah, thanks.
0: Alexandra, we're almost at the end of our interview. Is there anything else you'd like to mention?
1: Um, I think I would just like to say that I wish that the U.S. government was better equipped to serve its citizens in this area and that for now, if you're going through this, Educate yourself, know all the levers that you can pull um, and continue to build your network so that you can learn about more levers and know that nobody else is gonna get your family member home other than you pushing. So never stop and never give up.
0: I absolutely agree. Um so Alexandra, I said this before and I'll say it again. We'll be right here by your side until your father and uncle come back home. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us.
1: Thank you, Darren.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of What Hostage Diplomacy. We're not just a podcast, we're a community. If you're on Twitter and would like to post a message of solidarity to the families or have any questions for us, please tweet it using the hashtag WhatHostageDiplomacy and we'll get back to you. If you like what we're trying to do, please do consider supporting the show financially. You can do this using the Support the Show link in the description of this podcast episode. We're grateful for any contributions no matter how small. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week. Take care.